Welcome to the Trinity Grace Church Podcast. Trinity Grace is a community helping New Yorkers embody the love of Christ for the good of our neighbors. We have two services on Sunday mornings, 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. at General Seminary in the Chapel of the Good Shepherd. We would love for you to join us. For more information, go to tgcdowntown.com. May you be filled with curiosity, grace, and peace as we listen and learn together through this sacred text. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants and 11 sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that the hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go until you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Now, if you'll stand with us for the reading of the gospel text. This is from John 4. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well to drink from and drank from himself as did also his sons and livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Well, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. 
We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has come now when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship the Spirit in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. The Gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, open up our hearts. Open up our imaginations. May we see, may we hear your spirit at work in us and in our neighbor. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Well, I am uh, I'm an eight on the Enneagram, which means my favorite phrase is get out of my face. While I say get out of my face, get out of my face, I like to, I like to argue. And this is the perfect text for an eight uh, because we're going to fight with God. Um, to start off, just to give us a little bit of a premise, this morning I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this talk in three acts. Um, the first act is, is based around Jacob fighting with God. The second act is the Samaritan woman fighting with Jesus. And the third act is the fight today at Jacob's well. To kind of set the premise, um, the angles that I'm going to be taking for this scripture is, is going to be a little bit different. Um, the spiritual path, something that I've learned that I, I really appreciate is if you put up on the, on the wall here, the spiritual path is the path of purification, illumination, and union. Um, in a Jewish context, they would say, as a child, you, uh, you, you read the Proverbs, you build on these truths. Then in your adolescence, you look at that pillar of truth from another side, which is you question it. And when you start to question it, you see things differently. There's illumination that happens, and within that idea of illumination, um, you would read Ecclesiastes. And then as an adult, you're able to have kind of these boundaries, and somehow the gap that fills in is union, which is you would read Song of Songs, right? So for me, um, as we teach this text, you'll see on the wall, construct, deconstruct, reconstruct, or thesis, antithesis, synthesis, or as in a lot of uh, Eastern Orthodox scholars would say, light, transcendence, darkness. Now, I am going to approach these two texts instead of just from the beginning of building on a sense of uh, purification. If you've heard this story, if you ever were in Sunday school, you, you hear the story of Jacob wrestling God. And then one end you can be like, that's awesome, right? Jacob wrestled God and he won. For some of us, you're like, hold up, what? Jacob wrestled God and won? There's something about it where you need to look at a different angle of the story. And an important part of that for us this morning is mythology. If you've ever seen, uh, there's a, a test, um, it's a mathematics test where it's three dots, three dots, three dots. So it's nine dots in a row. And they will say, all right, connect the dots with a pen without lifting the pen uh, with four straight lines. It is impossible to do this test unless 
you go beyond the dots, and then beyond the dot again, beyond, and then connect the dots. So the only way it works is if you go beyond the dots. With mythology, especially when you're reading Old Testament things that seem so, well, so crazy, um, it's really important to realize that mythology helps our imagination and language think outside of the box that we put on reality. It helps us to see reality in new ways so that we can see and engage beauty and truth that transcends. And so we start off today with Act 1. It is a myth. doesn't mean it isn't true. But this myth is one where you get a guy named Jacob who's a twin. He comes out. His name is literally, he's the heel of his brother. And his brother is a real bro's bro. Esau loves to hunt. He loves sports. And one day, uh, Esau goes out hunting, comes back. He's so hungry. And his brother, who's a little more, you know, he's in touch with the, with the arts, with the finer things of life. He's like, dude, I'm so hungry. Will you give me something to eat? And Jacob is smart. He's, you know, he's, he's, he's with his twin. He's like, I'll tell you what, I'll give you some food if you sell me your birthright. And they're young. So he ends up saying, great, I'll, I'll give you my birthright, whatever. Gives him some food. That's strike one against his brother. Strike two is later on, after another hunt, a long day in the wilderness, Esau comes back. But while he's out, his mom, Jacob's mom, says, hey, go, not only you've got this birthright, but I want you to get the blessing. So go to your father at the time who's pretty much blind, can't really see much. Goes and he takes some, takes some hair, puts it on his arms, because his brother was a hairy man, real man's man. He puts it on his arms and he goes up and he tricks his, his dad into giving him the blessing. And so now you get this big family rift. Now, imagine if you've ever done something wrong to your siblings and you know it was your fault. I think really quick of when I was a kid, um, I, I was the third brother and I would always annoy my brother so much. But I remember I was hitting on my brother Rob and he got so mad at me that he took my sister's glass bottle and he threw it at me. I dodged and it hit my bro other brother in the forehead. And then those two just started wrestling, right? Now, whose fault was it? mine. Most things were my fault. But I had a sense of like, ooh, I kind of did something bad, but I kind of also got away with it, right? This is Jacob. It, at best, it's kind of frowned upon, but he's like, what isn't these days, right? It's like, okay. He's just, he's, he's working with it. Well, as we lead into this story in Genesis 32, Jacob is about to see his brother, and his brother has been very angry. And has made proclamations that he will kill Jacob. Now there's talks of like a little bit of peace. But we enter this story where Jacob, before he meets his brother, wrestles with God. Now, on a certain level, this seems so ridiculous to think, how could Jacob wrestle with God and somehow put up a fight and win? My son, Edison, is very much like me. And uh, he thinks that he can beat anyone up. He is five years old, but he'll be like, do you want to wrestle? 
And right when he starts wrestling you, he will keep going and keep going and keep fighting. So much to the point where like, you after an hour are like, I'm done. I'm done. Now, I could destroy my son. But that's child abuse. Now, you think of it like this. Jacob is wrestling God. What is this? It's play. Our spirituality is play. When we think of this story, I often have heard this story and you hear about you wrestle with your doubts, your fears, your angst. God isn't freaking out. Wrestling is a part of spirituality. I love that. For some of us, we, we don't like the idea of wrestling with fears, doubts, and those types of things. And yet, I would like to suggest that though wrestling with your faith may seem scary, it's actually a part of that spiritual path, and it actually is play. So you could be freaked out because you go, someone's kind of deconstructing the way they view this, and go, yeah, that's okay. It's play. Because if God is God, God is God not because you believe everything right about God. If you think that somehow you're holding on, wrestling, guess what? God's holding on to you. This is play. And so as you engage it, you'll notice that what happens to Jacob? Jacob engages God, wrestles God, and he gets a limp. He gets hurt. Now, this is the idea of any time you are going to wrestle with God. There will be a season of pain. There will be a season of darkness. And the paradox is somehow that that pain is gift. Somehow, wrestling with God wounds us. And we end up walking away with a limp. But this is the path of spirituality. That somehow a good theology, a good spirituality is always oriented towards healing wounds. So act one, Jacob wrestling. Act two, Jacob's well. We pick up in the Gospel of John 4 verse 6. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Why do Jews not associate with Samaritans? Let's hit a quick pause and do a quick history lesson. Uh, second century Samaritans... Um, ended up helping the Syrians, the Syrian monarchs, against the Jews. There's some big beef here. About a hundred years later, um, a Jewish rabbi comes in, and uh, he burns down uh, a temple that is a Samaritan temple. So currently, there's some tension. But this tension actually goes back way, 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 way farther. In fact, Samaritans, within their religion, they only recognize the first five books of the Torah. And you get this in 2 Kings chapter 17. You get this story of the king of Assyria, you can see, brought from people in from Babylon. It goes, brought people from Kuta, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvim. And I'm sure I'm butchering that right now. Butchering the pronunciations. This is my Wisconsin pronunciation. And settled them in towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. 
They took over Samaria and lived in its towns. Jump down to verse 29. Nevertheless, each national group made its own gods in several towns where they settled, and they set them up shrines the people of Samaria had made at the high places. 2 Kings 17.32, it says this, They worshipped the Lord, but they also appointed all sorts of their own people to officiate for them as priests in the shrines at the high places. They worshipped the Lord, but they also served their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations from which they had been brought. To this day, they persist in all their former practices. They neither worship the Lord nor adhere to their decrees and regulations, the laws and the commands that the Lord gave the descendants of Jacob, whom he named Israel. So I want you to get this just for a moment. Here's the history. Assyria, who is an empire, comes in and they bring in five tribes. Five. Now, those five tribes create seven gods. Those seven gods demand child sacrifices. Now, within this scope, you see that the Jewish people and the Samaritans are family. But imagine in the same way that Jacob and Esau, there is a rift. There is a very large rift that looms. The rivalry and the conflict rises. And we get to this point at Jacob's well where Jesus is speaking to a Samaritan woman. And there's about to be a little bit of a fight. There are social norms being broken. For one, Jesus is speaking to a woman. He is a rabbi. Are rabbis supposed to speak to women alone? No. Not only is he kind of breaking that social norm, but she is a Samaritan woman. Are you to be speaking to a Samaritan? No. This is very shocking. Later on in the text, you'll see that the disciples and everybody are a little bit freaked out that these two were talking. And so we pick up on verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, to the Jewish mind, living water is a phrase that is referred to as the Torah. He is speaking a reference that she would understand. He's, he's saying living water. Now she kind of, you pick up on verse 11, he says, Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. How can you get this living water? She's kind of calling him out a bit. Verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, and also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't go thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, and now we're going to get real feisty. Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is that you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Now, let's hit pause one more time. Five husbands. At the time in Samaria, in the Samaritan religion, you're only allowed to have three husbands. 
you get three strikes. After that, you don't get to keep on getting married. So it could be she just got past the system here. Or perhaps Jesus is doing something here that we can recognize maybe there's something else going on. Now, as one of my favorite teachers here within our community, Tyler Schwartz, would say, he thinks Jesus has a sense of humor. And I kind of like to read this from a sense of, what if this is a really solid burn? Meaning, sometimes we think of Jesus as superhuman. We know that he is the Son of God. But when we say he's the Son of God, often we think that means Jesus can do things in a magical way. That he can look at someone's thoughts and read their thoughts and just know all these things. Which on one end, if you believe that, that's great. It's cool. But what if to be fully God and fully man, somehow that through the idea of the incarnation is God puts on the humility or the limitations of what it means to be human. In Orthodox theology, this idea is called the economy of the sun, which means Jesus restores human nature. Rowan Williams would put it like this. Life, death, and resurrection of the incarnate word restores, transforms the entire map of what's possible for humans. So what Christ does is to redraw the boundaries in which humans operate. Christ restores human nature. The possibilities of being restored have to be actualized through the Holy Spirit. But this is our path. It's a path of learning to become human. As Father Claire would say, Christianity is about converting yourself to your true self. So when I read this story, on one end I could say, maybe Jesus is just reading you know, her book in a way that, like, yeah, she's had five husbands and now a lover. Or what if Jesus is making an observation about his enemy and is using playful humor? pointing out and critiquing the ways that Samaritans forgot who they were and now are once again way too cozy with empires. They're used to being cozy with the Assyrians and the Babylonians and now they're way too cozy with Rome. See, they, Jesus knows that their history is they have had five tribes. He says, I see that you have had five husbands. Not only that, they only accept five books in the Old Testament. And in the same way that they helped the Assyrians, now they are helping Rome. And the woman here, see, she responds so interesting. She says, I see you're a prophet. Which on one end, I can imagine some great woman shade of going like, oh, okay. I see you're a prophet. And she goes right at him. She says, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus comes back at her, woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, and they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. 
Pause. Samaritans believe in a Messiah. They do not believe in the same Messiah as the Jews believe. The Jews believe that that the Messiah will be the king from the line of David. Samaritans believe that that the Messiah will be a prophet that brings the truth. So there's a little bit of difference right here. But she says, I know that the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Why? Because the Messiah to her is a teacher that will explain it all. And Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Now, the first time in John's gospel that Jesus reveals himself as the Messiah is to who? This woman, who is his enemy, who is worshiping technically in a way that's crazy to the Jewish faith. But the story of Jacob and the story of Jacob's well point out that our salvation is always found through our enemy. The Samaritan woman is able to see God, be blessed by God, because she is willing to fight, argue, and engage her enemy with an open heart and an open mind. The Samaritan woman's salvation is found through engaging her enemy. But the story of Jacob and the story of Jacob's well are stories of people fighting with God that we would call they are playing, they are being playful. And that play always leads to healing and reconciliation. Rowan Williams puts it like this. A good theology is a theology oriented towards healing human wounds. A good theology is always oriented towards healing human wounds. In scripture, over and over again, we read the story of Jesus, or we'll read the story of parables, and we, we read it anthropologically, meaning, uh, I'm sorry, we read it in a way where we go, I am the hero in the story, right? I'm the good guy. I'll go to the Samaritan person. However, we need to read them theologically first, meaning, what does this say about God? God is always God. We we actually are not the good guys. So somehow, the stranger, the unintelligible, the other is God. When we meet the other, we meet the divine. Elizabeth Johnson She's writing on the paradox of Christianity, and she writes this. The creative, redeeming paradox of Jesus is a paradox that points to the way of reconciliation of opposites and their transformation from enemies into a liberating, unified diversity. Holy moly. Let me read this one more time. The paradox, the redeeming paradox of Jesus is a paradox that points the way to a reconciliation of opposites and their transformation from enemies into a liberating, unified diversity. This is our act of play. Reconciliation in our church when we talk about peacemaking. This is us learning how to engage with the other. Learning how to fight well. Learning how to fight and engage for peace. We don't shy away from conflict. In fact, fact, when we meet conflict, that is the place that we meet grace. So, you got to learn how to fight fair. Here's Act 3. Modern day fighting at the well. When I say that we're fighting and peacemaking, peacemaking is our act of discipleship. 
But we do not fight unfair. We do not fight against people in the sense of our, our warfare is not against flesh and blood. We fight for flesh and blood. Our warfare is against the systems of oppression, the things that actually tear us apart and the violent systems. And so when we talk about peacemaking, we talk about ways that we can engage the other creatively. Right now, there's a place when you go to Jacob's well, it's in a, it's in a city called Nablus, which is a Palestinian town. And over Jacob's well is a beautiful Eastern Orthodox church. It, at this well, you can go up and you can drink the water. It's one of the coolest holy land sites because it's like it hasn't changed. The well is still there. Now, there's a church built on top of it, but you can go down to the well. And as you go down to the well, you'll notice you walk through this beautiful church and you'll see this picture. And it's a very odd picture because it was a monastery and there was a monk that is being killed by someone with an axe. The story is, this monk, his ministry, the majority of his ministry in this Palestinian town was right across the street is the largest refugee camp in Palestine. And in this refugee camp, the most suicide bombers um, during the Second Intifada came out of this camp. It is a place where there's not a lot of hope. And this priest devoted his life to serving this mostly Muslim community. Now, during the late 70s, he started getting threats. And at a time when more and more settlers were moving into um, this area of Palestine, someone uh, who was an extremist and that on one level you would say has mentally was not there, um, took grenades and threw it in the church. He followed this person out, and this person took an axe and murdered him by chopping him up. Well, this church could have, in the midst of this type of violence and conflict, um, could have kind of shut down. But instead, the next monk was an artist, and he did something that I find so beautiful. He started creating these giant murals. And he told the story of the priest who now has been sainted in the Orthodox Church. And he built up this cathedral that is the most stunning cathedral that I think in all of the Holy Land. It's, it's gorgeous. And his resistance was to create, was to play. And for me, as I think of discipleship and I think of where we're at in the city right now and we engage and we wrestle through ideas, on one end, I think is what is your creative act of resistance? What is your wrestling with God? For some of you, it may involve art. For some of you, it may involve presence. I don't know. But whatever that is, there is a creative act of waging war. Not against our neighbor, but for our neighbor. And that somehow, as we engage in peacemaking, just as Jacob was getting ready to meet his enemy, his brother, God met him there.
just as the Samaritan woman engages with her enemy and God meets her there. How, too, can we engage with our enemy? And how will God meet us? I'll, I'll leave us with this poem. Low under the gentle vine, O Christ, the whole church plays in peace. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would call all peacemakers in this room. Give us ears to hear the call. Give us courage to wrestle with our own fears and doubts and anxiety. And may we not shy away from pain, but may we see it as gift and somehow know that you are our wounded healer. And may we too become agents of healing and reconciliation. That as we go out into our work week and we go into our jobs and to our families, that Lord, you would help us engage and love well. That as we prepare for communion today, a body that is broken, a love that is poured out, that Lord, you would broke, break our hearts and open up our minds so that we can reflect this love. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Trinity Grace Church podcast. Trinity Grace is an interdenominational church centered around the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. Our church is theologically rooted in the Apostles and Nicene creeds, but we welcome people of any or no religious backgrounds to participate in our community. If you'd like to support us, please text TGC Downtown to 77977. That's TGC Downtown to 77977. Or visit our website, tgcdowntown.com. Thank you for listening. Lord bless you and keep you. May God's face shine upon you. And may you be filled with peace, hope, and love.